Just liberty.org. It's good for you and it's good for me. Just liberty.org. Just liberty.org. Hi, I'm Amanda Marzullo. While executing a search warrant, San Antonio Police and Animal Services discovered 136 snakes, all pythons, in a two-bedroom, one-bath home, along with 451 mice and rats, which apparently were food for the serpents. The Express News reported that the pet owner was handcuffed at the scene and angry that his property was being taken. So, Scott, do you think the homeowner's anger was justified? You're damn right I was angry. As it happens, I have a very large extended family, and the snakes were intended as Christmas presents for cousins, nieces, nephews, and all and so, sorts of other assorted kinfolk. As, as, as everyone puts on their list, That's right? right. The, the stocking stuffers, <laughs> if you will, is really how they were intended, because who doesn't want a, a python curled up at the bottom of your stocking? And if I can't get my property back from impound, this whole bah humbug mentality is about to ruin Christmas. Absolutely. I'm sure your friends, family, and kinfolk will agree that this is just destroying their holiday. When will the war on Christmas end, Mandy? I don't know. When will it end? (laughs) Never, Scott. Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to the December 2018 episode of the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast covering Texas criminal justice, politics, and policy. I'm Scott Henson, Policy Director at Just Liberty, here today with our good friend Mandy Marzullo, who's Executive Director at the Texas Defender Service. How are you doing today, Mandy? I've never been better, Scott. All right. Well, that sounds awfully good. I'm not getting a snake for Christmas. Well, not now you're not. That's for (laughs) sure. On today's show, we discuss shocking developments at the Court of Criminal Appeals, a reform blueprint for 21st century prosecutors, and here two police union negotiators square off with a Texas civil rights activist. Mandy, what are you looking forward to on the podcast today? I am looking forward to discussing the Court of Criminal Appeals. We have two items. I'm not going to pick between the two of them because they're both excellent topics. So you just go straight for the sexiest items, Court of Criminal Appeals decisions. Just yeah, that's that's what people tell me all the time, right? I mean, that, you can't you can't pull the guys away from me. <laughs> that's what people always say. In our top story, 19 reform-minded prosecutors from around the country gathered in Houston last week for the release of a new report titled 21 Principles for the 21st Century Prosecutor, produced jointly by the Brennan Center, Fair and Just Prosecution, and the Justice Collaborative. Four of those were from Texas. Kim Mogg from Harris County, John Cruzo from Dallas, Joe Gonzalez from San Antonio, and Mark Gonzalez from Corpus Christi. Accompanying each principle, the report included numerous specific policy proposals for reducing the size and scope of the justice system and making it more humane. Scott, what stood out to you from their suggestions? I think what stood out to me more than any one thing, although we're going to talk about some specific items, was just how this is one of the first times you've seen advocacy groups lay out an agenda for what is a progressive prosecutor. You know, we've talked on the podcast before about how when Larry Krasner produced his memo directing his prosecutors about how they should charge and how they should talk about cost of our incarceration to the jury and all these different Mm -hmm. elements, that was really the first time someone had shown, okay, here's what a prosecutor could do if you wanted to reduce mass incarceration. And I think that these 21 principles is 
furthering that conversation in a, in a productive way. I don't think it's the final say-so. There's a lot of things in here I agree with. I also think there's some suggestions that maybe they, they left out probably to get all the prosecutors on, on board, board that they, they got. And so, you know, there's probably more to the discussion than just this. But, you know, when Kim Og or Mark Gonzalez from Harris County and Corpus Christi, respectively, were elected, there was no Krasner memo. There was no 21 principles. Mm -hmm. And so they just got to declare themselves progressive prosecutors. They didn't have to, say, uh, match up their policy agenda with some policy agenda of here's what progressive prosecutors believe. They just got to sort of assume that mantle and, uh, you know, maybe they're progressive on some items and maybe on some of the others, much less so. But we didn't have a way to judge or have that conversation mm -hmm. or hold them accountable once they're in office before this intellectual work had been done. So in some way, we put the cart before the horse. We started electing the prosecutors, prosecutors before we had a way to sort of judge whether they're achieving those progressive goals. But this is part of how we, we make those judgments. Yeah, I, I think for me, the, the big thing that also stood out was that, you know, a lot of this, we've seen prosecutors, like you said, endorse pieces of it, you know, going on for decades here in Texas, but not all of it. And I, I just would urge that, you know, the funders and policymakers out there that a report like this isn't the final project product and that we really need to be evaluating compliance with these principles you know, from a defense practitioner's perspective. You know, I think that even the four Texas prosecutors who showed up don't necessarily sync up with these principles, at least definitely, at least not all of them for sure. But, you know, for example, Mark Gonzalez is horrendous on the death penalty. Um, I, I know, you know, he, he's, you know, he may be great on other issues, but our office alone is involved in four cases out of his jurisdiction. Right. And wasn't uh, one of them one where the defendant had actually given CPR at the scene and stayed there until the cops arrived? Yes. He actually is scheduled. Jury selection in his case is scheduled for January and the prosecution is seeking death. And that is a case that would not be a death case in other jurisdictions in Texas. Right. And that's an example where among these 21 principles, and one of them is worked in the death penalty. Other examples are play fair with forensic evidence, expunge and seal criminal records, in the poverty trap of fees and fines, broaden discovery, make diversion the rule, uh, charge with restraint and plea bargain fairly, end toward moving cash bail or a move toward ending cash bail, excuse me. So, uh, and, and numerous others. And so, that's what I was saying. Many yeah. prosecutors, I would say most of these progressive prosecutors, there's probably going to be, you know, two or three of these that they do really well, that yeah. they really are trying to do, you know, the best you could possibly do. There's probably two or three more for each of them where they've sort of made a hat tip. Mm -hmm. They're giving some thought to it. And then most of the rest, their office operates like it always has, because when you move in and take over a new bureaucracy, you can't change everything at once. And, and Krasner is really the one who's trying the most mm -hmm. to say, okay, just soup to nuts. We're going to change everything and God bless him. But that's, that's difficult to do. And it's not the choice most elected prosecutors make.
Last month, Austin activist Kathy Mitchell provided podcast listeners with an update on the final result of the Austin Police Union contract, an agreement which had been the subject of an intense local battle over police accountability. After the city council rejected the contract last December without accountability reforms, police went almost a year without a contract, not to mention without numerous lucrative stipends for officers which were built into the labor agreement. With the new contract in place, local activists secured several important reforms to the disciplinary process, while the overall cost of the contract reduced by about $10 million per year. Now that the dust has settled, tempers have died down, and a new agreement is in place, Scott invited the union's chief negotiator, Ron DeLorde, and Chaz Moore, one of the one of Texas's top up-and-coming civil rights leaders and executive director of the Austin Justice Coalition to discuss what happened. Let's listen to their conversation. On December 13, 2017, the Austin City Council rejected a contract negotiated between city management and the local police union after local activists led by the Austin Justice Coalition rallied the community to oppose it, demanding greater police accountability. Nearly one year later, a new contract was signed, but this time it included numerous reforms championed by local activists and cost taxpayers tens of millions less. Last month on the podcast, we recapped the results, detailing new reforms included in the contract. This month, I asked Ron DeLore, the founder of the Combined Law Enforcement Associations of Texas, and Chris Perkins, who paired with Ron as lead negotiators on the union side, to sit down with Chaz Moore from the Austin Justice Coalition to reflect on what happened and why. I'll post a recording of the full conversation on my blog next week, but in the meantime, here are some notable excerpts. Ron DeLorde began by situating Austin's contract fight within police reform efforts nationally. I've done this about <clears throat> four times. I was asked to go and speak, but only till the last one that I did in California was I, did I have a conclusion because the others was what happened and why they get voted down, but I didn't know the ending. And so when it ended, then I actually could go back and reflect on what I saw as the difference. So, Nashville activists uh, uh, got a charter amendment up, and they passed it against right. the union. Uh, Seattle activists, where there's a the police union department's under a federal consent decree, uh, tried to block it, but the council passed it. But now they've gone to the federal judge to see if if he agrees. But <clears throat> uh, recently there was some uh, similar stuff in Oakland. So uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis have all had. Uh, activist groups that go in one of two approaches. Uh, don't hire any more police officers because we want to use the money on other social programs. And the other is just the arguments about transparency and accountability. So this came was the first time I've been involved in it just myself, although I now that I have been, I've been watching it around the country. Yeah. I asked the Austin Justice Coalition's Chaz Moore what lessons he had learned from the experience, and here's how he responded. You remember when we first started out, we were just like any other activist group. We were in the streets marching and protesting, and it didn't really solve anything. It was just like a space created for people to vent and you know be emotional and be mad, which is needed in the movement in, in some capacity. But we looked at the reasons why we were marching, which was you know police brutality, you know the lack of discipline. 
lack of transparency. And for us, that lined up with one question, like, how do we actually fix some of the things that we're out here protesting and shutting down traffic for, right? So here in Austin, that, that led to us doing some some homework and some history of our own and looking back at, you know, 1999 through 2001, that, that period with the police oversight road group, I believe, that, that you were on um, or, or Kathy was on. Well, I, I wasn't on the focus group, but I was part of the group that got the Austin Police Association yep. boot planted firmly up my ass when <laughs> when we lost that fight. So yeah, that's yeah. I, I was part of that. Yes, yeah, you know. So so looking looking at that group, um, looking at some of the things that happened or probably didn't happen um, that the group recommended that was taken away in like this kind of last you know minute kind of a thing, and then looking at the root for the issues that we were concerned about, and it all led to the to the police contract and it, it led to us really focusing in on that right which is something that a lot of activists don't do right like we we like to protest in march and hashtag this and that but you, you know for us it was like we really wanted to to create change and have change and that's what it was you know so for the last 18 months up until you know last couple of weeks ago in november it was all contract that's the, you know that's what i did for the last year and a half um and you know it was it it was um it was an interesting fight you know it it started with you know these guys basically saying i was you know a dumb piece of shit <laughs> um and and then you know actually that won't ever stop by the way i don't no, know if you know charlie wilkinson but that'll go on <laughs> for like a long time yeah you know but but, anyway, but now but. i think um I, I i think we i think we um agree to disagree on some things and i think ron and chris and and, and thomas finally just just said, well, like, what do you guys actually want? Like, you know, what, like, like, what's the, what's the, what's the motion and all that, and it led to some pretty good conversations, and uh, you know, I think it led to something historic. Chris Perkins had taken over as one of the lead negotiators relatively late in the process after contract negotiations had stalled. I asked him to describe what changed about the union's strategic approach with him at the helm. Chris. You sort of stepped in, maybe not quite at the 11th hour, but nearly to, as one of the lead negotiators. And I, I think it's fair to say that everything was at an impasse before you came on. The police association president had gone before the city council and raised his voice and yelled at them and really seemed at the end of his rope. And you stepped in very soon thereafter as sort of the, the closer negotiator to sort of take it home. And it seemed like there was a, a change in strategic approach then that y'all softened up, started to talk to the activist. Tell me about what was going on when you stepped in and how you were able to, to get to the conclusion. Well, it was really a, a, a total team effort, though. I mean, I, I recognize that, that myself and Ron sat up as the, as the face, but we had a, a pretty uh, diverse team. Um, I, I hardened back to December 13th uh, of 2017, uh, and that's the day where we as an association recognized that we were going to have to take a different approach. I really so, enjoy that you remember the date. So I, I will never forget that date. As a matter of fact, I, I actually was, I was on that negotiation team. I was not in a leadership role, um, but I had been in the police association before. Uh, as a full-time representative, I had gone back uh, to patrol and to be a detective, and they kind of brought me back in. So I was there for December 13th, 2017, um, and all of our eyes uh, were wide open. Um, and we sat down. The level of organization that, for lack of better terms, has caught us completely off guard. 
uh, we underestimated. Uh, we were not communicating with some of the loudest voices in the community. Um, I've, I've told Chaz this several times. I don't, I don't call him an activist. He's a lobbyist. And some of the work that was, that was done there, we had to sit down and take a real hard look at it. Um, so yes, we did take a, a different approach. Uh, we started actually, uh, someone was a little bit harder. Uh, to approach and he might want to accept it now. I, I tried, uh, uh, reaching out to, uh, several members of the Austin Justice Coalition and other organizations. And it, I guess it took them a little while just because of maybe past history. And um, they thought I might be trying to play some games, but, but I really wasn't because it wasn't just my belief. It really was Ron's as well. He, he's seen this all over and he, he saw this. We all were caught a little flat footed by that day, but we said, we have to take a new approach. Let's sit down. Let's have conversations because I bet there's a lot more that we agree upon than we don't, than we, than we disagree with. Because it's my firm belief when these conversations happen that not just the community, but the police officers themselves can become safer. If, if we're able to knock down some of those misconceptions, we're able to explain our side and listen to the opposite side. That's diplomacy is, is, a, is a really good way to move forward. Proving you can still teach an old dog new tricks, Ron Delord described how his approach and attitude had changed over the course of the Austin contract fight. Here's the number one lesson that we learned. Round one, okay, they were they were loaded, they had prepared, they had a, a concise message, the police did not. They were able to find lots of allies, groups that totally surprised us that had really nothing to do. I mean, the Sierra Club or right. Save Our Springs. What in the heck have they got to do with police bargaining? But they got them against us. And so, but what, what the lesson learned was when we came back, I just ignored the chatter from Chaz and the groups. I mean, they were picking in, they were out, they were at every meeting. And in numerous group ones would say, well, we don't have a seat at the table. But for 50 years, it wasn't my problem because right. I dealt with the city and right. the city is their representative. So they weren't getting a voice on that side or our side. But I tell you, after the round one, when we came back, Chris and I, our team made a decision. We're going to go ahead and engage with activist groups. And we're going to talk to them because the first time we ignored them and they tripped us up. But this time, I don't know that we can reach an accord on everything, and we couldn't. But once we sat down, it took several conversations back and forth that I would tell groups now, we're going to look for things of which we can mutually agree that provides protection for the officer's due process, but at the same time, doesn't defend practices that don't make any sense. Finally, I asked Chaz Moore to describe for the benefit of activists elsewhere where he thought his leverage came from when confronting such a powerful adversary. I agree with Ron, and I don't think a lot of activists and organizers would like this, but I think, so what we wanted to do was win, right? Like, we didn't care if you cared about our issue or our cause. We wanted to win, and we knew in order to win, the best way was to talk about money, right? Like, I agree 110% with Ron on that, right? I, I'm not sure all, all but one, maybe two council members cared about the transparency and accountability. But, you know, for the most part, out of that 11 0 vote, none of those people probably cared about money, right? So, like, instead of talking about, you know, stop killing, you know, unarmed black people and stop, you know, mistreating people, 
we just have to talk about the money. And that's how we get the, you know, the strange bedfellows of Sierra Club and, you know, you know, save our springs and all these things that really didn't make sense when you when you when you talk about it. Right. We we had the parks people come out and talk about don't pay the cops. Right. So but <laughs> so, like, it, it, it was it was yeah, it, it was for us. It was like, how do we get how, like like what's the road to win? Right. And like like that was a huge part of it, which um, something we agree with. Right. But like that's not the most important thing for for at least for my organization. Right. We care about. We do care more about the transparency and accountability, but the the money factor, which is equally important, was the most important to the people that ultimately made that decision. So right. that was something that we lifted up for, you know, probably about six months of last year. And then once we got that initial no on, on December 13th, now we can start talking about other stuff, right? I, I think if people were really paying attention to it, I think the money issue became incredibly transparent that that was the the key issue back in i believe you know february march or april when they again just didn't give them the stipends back so for me i knew at that time okay like that's the leverage point and in order for us to get what we want and for them to get what you know what they want we were gonna have to have these conversations right because city council could have easily hid behind us again if they wanted to but we also looked at well can we actually live with a better contract and they get some money back? You know, because we did want the information, right? We wanted the right. the information on the bad cops because everybody thinks we're an anti-cop group and we're not. We're anti-bad cop, right? We're anti-secret cop and all that type of stuff. So the leverage point for us, uh, which we identified very quickly, was money. In September, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals heard oral arguments in James Calvert v. State, a death penalty case out of Smith County in which the mentally ill defendant represented himself at trial. The case made headlines after Mr. Calvert was electrocuted with a 50,000-volt stun belt by the court's security team for disobeying a command to stand up. As we'll hear, not even the government suggests there was a safety-based reason to do so. But Mr. Calvert's headline-making courtroom electrocution has overshadowed other important issues raised by his attorneys. Let's dig into them. James Calvert was a particularly difficult defendant as his lawyer even admitted in court. As we acknowledge in our briefs, faced with a difficult situation that he did not want and feeling he had no choice but to proceed pro se, James Calvert proved to be a difficult pro se litigant with obvious mental health impairments. He was paranoid, he was highly obsessive compulsive, he readily perceived offense. Calvert's attorney, David DeBruin, criticized arguments by the prosecution in the penalty phase of the case, where testimony was given by a former prison guard who'd been stabbed in the eye by an inmate. The court allowed the state to contend that Calvert should be executed because some other unknown inmate, having no connection to Calvert, stabbed a pencil through David Logan's eye and into his brain. The court also repeatedly expressed in the presence of the jury the court's own view of the evidence and its own opinion about Calvert. The court ultimately encouraged deputies to electrify Calvert with an electric shock device simply because Calvert occasionally failed or forgot to stand when addressing the court. The court also wrongfully terminated Calvert's pro se status. For all of these reasons, I submit, uh, Calvert is entitled to a new trial or at a minimum to a new capital sentencing hearing. Judge Alcala wondered how prosecutors could make the case for future dangerousness without describing dangerous prison conditions. 
But de Bruyne pushed back, insisting the case law requires an individual assessment. But in prison, people turn pencils into stabbing objects, and they kill each other, and they throw bleach on each other. I mean, it's a horrible place, but and horrible things happen. I understand, Your Honor, and that is certainly true. But again, in Kabul, this court said you still have to impose death based on the individual circumstances of the defendant. And to take an incident like what happened to Logan that had nothing to do with Calvert, and then to basically say, execute Calvert because of what happened to Logan by some other inmate who may have absolutely no relation in terms of his background, in terms of his record, in terms of his uh, makeup to James Calvert, I, I submit is, is impermissible. De Bruyne also criticized the trial judge, Jack Skeen, for repeatedly commenting on the evidence and being openly hostile to Mr. Calvert. Given the number of instances that we point out in our reply, at pages 26 to 29, where the court commented on the evidence and also commented about Calvert, finding his cross-examinations to be just a total waste of time. Can you imagine if the, if the court uh, had the state's first witness called and the court said after the state's witness rested, well, that was a total waste of time. Uh, again, this is the court not acting as the neutral arbiter in a case, but expressing its own views and opinions. And this court has recognized juries pay attention to that. The court has enormous respect. And given the volume of comments, the court stating in the presence of the jury, I can't hear you, James Calvert, but I don't know what difference it makes if I can hear you. Again, signaling uh, the court's opinion about Calvert. De Bruin didn't spend much time talking about Calvert being zapped with an electrified stun belt, but it was all the government's lawyer wanted to talk about. In Calvert, you have a situation where, number one, you have a pro se defendant who, from the get-go, was nothing but full of contempt for the proceedings, full of contempt for the trial court, full of contempt for the state. This is, let me ask you this. Are you suggesting that... Are you suggesting, and I'm serious, I'm, I'm interested in what you'd say about this, that the law, there's a law, or law would allow for a judge to use a, a stun belt or something for some purpose other than security, such as to maintain control over the defendant? There's no case law to help me with that question. The prosecutor's representative, Michael West, conceded that there was no finding in the record that Mr. Calvert posed a security threat. Instead, he insisted that the defendant's continued insolence justified zapping him. Judge Alcala wasn't buying it. Mr. West, I'm still coming back to whether you're seriously arguing that this was for security. The record says, I mean, they quote the record in the brief that the judge says, stand up, and then the captain says, stand up, and then the sergeant says, I told you to stand up, and then the captain says, stand up, and then he's shocked. So he was just sitting there. It, it's pretty obvious to me. And then later on, they, they get testimony from this Captain Carraway, who says at the time he was zapped, he wasn't making a move to the DA, making a move toward the court. He wasn't making a move toward court personnel. He was basically uh, being disrespectful and not standing up when he was supposed to and sitting down. And the answer is yes. So how can you argue that he was a security risk where the record to me is more than clear that he was sitting down, the judge says stand up, and he didn't do what the judge, or one of them says stand up, he didn't stand up, and then he gets shot. How on earth is that for security? 
I haven't said it was for security, man. Your Honor, I, I've said there's no findings that, that re represent that it was for security right, reasons. Judge Alcala insisted that the use of the stun belt in this case was wholly inappropriate. It's not in the record, but when you're in the courtroom and you see it, and... Believe me, I was a trial judge. I had all kinds of crazy people in front of me, and I was as frustrated as all get out. But the remedy is not to put a shock device on them and shock them when they don't stand up. That is just plain vanilla, black and white, you don't do that. There's a lot to chew on there. So, Mandy, what's your takeaway on this case? I think this case is outrageous. And, you know, and, and essentially the outcome undermines the integrity of our system and public confidence in it. it. You know, in particular, to me, what stands out is the judge commenting on the evidence. Uh, in the defense briefs, they note 20 instances where the judge talked about the evidence and made comments to undermine Calvert. That is not a judge that's calling balls and strikes. That is a judge that has a particular point of view and is communicating it to the jury. Clearly had become frustrated and angry with Calvert and made no effort to hide that from what it sounds like in the record. Yeah, no. And, and so it's hard to imagine that this was a fair trial. Yeah, the court seemed to say to be saying, they seem to be telling the attorney for the state that if he could come up with some security reason, they might find some way to justify it. But there was none. There yeah. simply is not any security. The guy was just sitting there when it happened. You know, for me, the issue in the case is whether the jury heard it is sort of how the framing mm. that the oral arguments went. To me, even if the jury didn't hear it, going back to what you were saying about the constant badgering of the witness and, and dismissing what he said, no, well, that was a waste of time <laughs> after he'd presented his, his parts of his case. And even if the jury didn't hear him zapping Mr. Calvert, to me, it shows Skeen's prejudice, the, the, the judge's prejudice in the case against him that, mm. you know, okay, I'm going to clear the courtroom and now it's time for you to get yours. And Calvert said to him afterwards, well, I'll bet you enjoyed that. Well, you know what? <laughs> it kind of seems like he probably did. It seems like that Skeen got yeah. some satisfaction from that, that there was, it was more personal than it should have been um, yeah. for a judge engaging you know, overseeing a death penalty case. No, it's it's terrifying. I mean, it's it's really a worst case scenario from sort of an observer's standpoint about how a, a trial can be convened. Well, and as the attorney for the defense said, Calvert should not have been representing himself in the first place. I mean, the the whole thing about allowing a mentally ill defendant to represent himself at trial and then wondering why everything goes sideways. Well, gee, I'm really surprised, honestly, that any judges are looking at this trial and thinking, oh, yeah, we want to go ahead and implement a death penalty based on what happened here. It's just a mess from start to finish. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to see how a jury could not have been biased by what occurred. And... I hope very much that they go ahead and allow for a new trial or at least a new sentencing hearing because this is not what our justice system needs to look like. We don't need the judge being dismissive of the defendant and mm -hmm. telling the jury that their arguments are worthless and don't matter. That's mm -hmm. not how 
this ought to be done, certainly not in a death penalty case. So the zapping aside, the whole trial looks biased and really embarrassing and and just something that Texas shouldn't be standing behind. Next, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals recently ruled against special prosecutors over their fees in the criminal case against Attorney General Ken Paxton. The court declared special prosecutors couldn't charge more than the trial rate established by the county for indigent defendants. But in a notable dissent, Judge Elsa Alcala declared the ruling was effectively a decision to deny paying a reasonable fee to defense attorneys appointed to represent indigent defendants, predicting that the ruling, quote, will likely result in more cases of ineffective assistance of counsel. Mandy, what do people need to know about this case? Well, in a nutshell, that Judge Alcala is right. This this ruling has potential to be a rollback pretty much on the Fair Defense Act itself. And it's pretty scary. So by way of background, the way t- the Texas statutory scheme works is that the county government, the commissioner's court, is supposed to put together an indigent defense c- an indigent defense plan that sets sort of rates for compensation for defense counsel. Mm -hmm. And in theory, they're supposed to be based on fair market value of of those services. But in reality, there is a lot of deviation. So in Collin County, where the Paxton case was taking place, the fee set forth a $1,000 flat fee for non-capital felonies, which would include potentially a murder case. Right. And then, you know, another $1,000 for pretrial prep. And then once you get in court, $1,000 a day. Now, that means that that, that's $2,000 for all of the preparation for a case, which can be tens of thousands of dollars and frequently often is at that rate. So it would make sense for courts to deviate from those statutory schemes when paying defense counsel. And, you know, what happens is, is in typical cases is the defense attorney fills out a voucher with an itemized bill that explains what they did in the, that extra time. And then they're paid an hourly rate. And I've seen that in bills from Collin County itself. But what this decision says is that the trial court has no discretion to deviate from that schedule. So that means that the defendants are locked into just a thousand dollars. And the strange thing in this circumstance is that, of course, this is not the the lawyer for an indigent client. This is a special prosecutor in a case involving um, corruption allegedly committed by a statewide elected official. And when you look at the history of the prosecution of statewide elected officials in Texas, they typically come up with defense teams that are simply through the moon. I don't know the numbers on what Ken Paxton has spent, but when Rick Perry was accused of, of crimes and had to, to hire his own attorneys, they spent $2.2 million yeah. on their defense and hired some of the biggest names in the Texas legal system to defend him. Well, if that's the case, then having a couple of thousand dollars to spend on lawyers means you probably shouldn't even bother to prosecute corruption anymore. Why? Yeah. What's the point you're if not- you're going to just bring a pea shooter you know, to a, a fight with a howitzer. And so that's the the just sort of direct implications, these indirect implications of, wait, what about every murder case that's more complex? What about all the circumstances where somebody needs to hire an expert or, or well, all these things? Well, I think the bigger issue is that, you know, as Keel noted in her dissent, that these statutory 
schedule or these schedules are not statutory aren't reflective of a reasonable rate. And so that means that this entire scheme that they've put together for compensating defense counsel doesn't hold muster. And the, the, the majority opinion pretty much acknowledges that towards the end, they say, Hey, this is just a special prosecutor case. And so this is how it has to operate in terms of compensating attorney pro tems. But, you know, when it comes to indigent defendants, there are Sixth Amendment implications that may trump this understanding of the law, which in and of itself leaves the trial courts with not a lot of guidance. No guidance at no, all. Exactly. And it just it, says, oh, y'all, here's something we can litigate for years and years. Yeah, Fun. Yeah, without just, paying you. That's right. Let's, let's, let's just throw out the statutory scheme. And, and just throw it wide open and just openly predict in the majority opinion basically years of litigation that, that we have no idea how it's going to end up when they could have just said right there. This is another example to me of outcome-oriented judges judging at the Court of Criminal Appeals. Yeah. They typically decide who they want to win and then just make a bunch of spurious arguments to to justify that. Or I say they, the government always wins faction on the court. This is sort of their modus operandi. And frankly, it's what we saw in some of the Calvert discussion. And they decided that they wanted Ken Paxton to win. The only difference in this case is that for once in the blue moon, the all-Republican court wanted the defendant to win. Normally, mm. they would just want the prosecution to win. But the, the common thread is the outcome-oriented judging, the choosing what you want the result to be and saying it doesn't really matter what damage is done by me just hacking through all this precedent. We're going to get the, the outcome I want, and if it takes years of litigation and it throws the whole defense system under the bus, oh, so be it. Ken Paxton got off, so that's good. Judge Alcala is right. You know, if defense attorneys are going to be locked into the compensation that is under the county schedule, you're going to see a lot of lawyers minimizing the time that they spend on their client cases. And we're reverting back to the plea mills that there's been a movement against. And on top of that, attorneys may be litigating their fee. But you're probably not going to see that in misdemeanor cases. It's going to be in the bigger cases where they're going to say, you know, in order to execute my duties to my client, I need this departure. And attorneys aren't going to litigate their fees very often because they want the same judge to appoint them the next time. And if you go suing over higher fees, they're not going to do it. And so, you know, it's nice to think that that's an option, an outlet, but in, as a practical matter, it, it kind of isn't. Yeah. So, I mean, this is an area where I think the legislature should consider a statutory preemption of some sort. Or, I mean, the other answer to this is for county commissioners to update their fee schedules. But, you know, there isn't always a willing, willingness to do that, or it requires a lot of fact finding on their part. But, you know, there are things that people can do now to prevent a disaster. Let's hope. Now it's time for our rapid fire segment we call The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, first one. A grand jury has indicted Dallas police officer Amber Geiger for murdering her neighbor, Botham Jean, in one of the most high-profile police shootings of 2018. Scott, what's your reaction? We have to give Faith Johnson credit where credit's due. She's a Republican-appointed district attorney. Greg Abbott put her there. 
and she has prosecuted more police officers for improper shootings, not just than any other prosecutor in Texas, including all our Democratic prosecutors, but any other prosecutor in the entire country in the time she's been there. So credit where credit's due. She's, mm-hmm. she's got guts, and she's taking these cases on. A new federal civil rights lawsuit filed by the group Equal Justice Under the Law challenges Texas driver responsibility surcharge, alleging that it discriminates against poor people and creates incentives for the government to keep them trapped in a cycle of debt. Mandy, what do you think about this development? I'm really excited to see it. From the activist community, there have been discussions about filing a similar lawsuit for a long time. I think it's overdue, and I'm really hoping that the timing will incentivize lawmakers to preempt this lawsuit. Okay, last one. In Houston, Ray Hill, a legendary LGBTQ rights activist and creator of The Prison Show at KPFT 90.1, passed away after an extended illness. Scott, how will you remember him? Ray was a badass and a hellraiser and a pioneer on civil rights fronts on every level. On gay lesbian issues, he was out front at a time when people were dropping dead right and left and you were on the front line to something really pivotal and important. When I first started working on criminal justice reform, the prison show was already an institution and he's one of the the few folks in all this work who was in this long before I was and and really deserves a lot of credit for having done a lot at a time when he was doing it alone. Oh God. All right, we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, I'm Scott Henson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzula with the Texas Defender Service. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Just Liberty's Reasonably Suspicious podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. We'll be back next month with more hopefully better news. And until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen.